Doings of Doyle is sponsored by Belanger Books, home of the best Sherlock Holmes anthologies featuring today's top Sherlockian authors. Belanger Books is the only authorised publisher of Solar Ponds Mysteries, continuing the Sherlock Holmes legacy into the 21st century. Visit them today at belangerbooks.com. Welcome to Doings of Doyle, a podcast dedicated to the works of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the creator of Professor Challenger, Brigadier Gerard, and of course, Sherlock Holmes. I'm Mark Jones. And I'm Paul Chapman. And together we'll be exploring Doyle's eclectic bibliography to understand more about the great man's life and work. We'll be discussing his fiction and non-fiction, the well-known and the obscure. And stopping by Baker Street along the way. You can find out more at doingsofdoyle.com or follow us at doingsofdoyle on Twitter. Hello and welcome to episode 13. Today we take a trip through time and space back to the 17th century court of Louis XIV and across the Atlantic to the forests of North America. We're looking at Conan Doyle's fourth historical novel, The Refugees, A Tale of Two Continents, first published in 1893. And here's Paul with an introduction to the story. The year is 1685 and a storm is brewing around Amory de Catana a young Huguenot captain in the garde de corps of King Louis XIV, the great Roi Soleil. De Catanat is well positioned to observe and fear the court machinations surrounding the imminent revocation of the 1598 Edict of Nantes, the law which granted the Protestant Huguenots a degree of religious freedom in an overwhelmingly Catholic France. When the edict is revoked, de Catanat and his family, his uncle Théophile and cousin and fiancé Adèle, together with their American friend Amos Green, are forced to flee to the New World. But the route to America is fraught with peril, and upon their arrival, the refugees discover that the prejudices and threats of Europe have crossed the Atlantic too, only to combine with the additional and novel dangers of an untamed and largely unknown new continent. Now, as this is a fairly lengthy novel, and uh, very little has been written about it, we've prepared a chapter-by-chapter synopsis of the story, which you can download at the website doingsofdoyle.com. So uh, let's begin with the writing and uh, publication history of the refugees. And unusually, we know quite a lot about Conan Doyle's work on this novel, perhaps because it wasn't really a very easy process for him. It all began in January 1891, when he was approached by the American periodical Harper's Monthly Magazine for a novel that they could serialise. Conan Doyle had by then found success as a writer. Uh, Stoddart had published The Sign of Four a year earlier. Uh, But he was still, at this point, practising medicine. And in fact, it was in January 1891 that he travelled to Vienna to study ophthalmology and wrote the short novel The Doings of Raffles Hoare, which we covered in our first podcast. Conan Doyle had free reign over what the novel should be about and uh, always a commercial writer with a sense of the market for which he's often denigrated. He latched on to making this into an American historical novel, perhaps seeing himself as a kind of Scot for the Americans, And in February 1892, he wrote to his mother with rather grand ambitions for the novel. He said, uh, this should be a new thing to Americans, and I shall be surprised if it doesn't fetch them. If I, a Britisher, could draw their early type so as to win their approval, I should be indeed proud, for by such international associations, nations are drawn together, and on the drawing together of these two nations depends the future history of the world. But the American angle was only one half of the story, quite literally, actually, in the case of the refugees. It's the second half of the book. 
the other half is really the story of the Puritans and the events in uh, the court of Louis the Fourteenth. And Conan Doyle, in February 1891, while in Vienna, started to refer to this as his Puritan story. But after completing the synopsis, he seems to have hit problems with the central idea of aligning these two quite distinct worlds. And nine months after accepting the commission from Harper's, he wrote to J.M. Stoddart and uh, talked about the difficulties he was having in writing The Refugees. He wrote... Harper some nine months ago ordered a novel of me for his magazine with the right of publishing afterwards. I determined to make this an American historical novel, but I find that the task is a huge one. There is, I find, more colour in the early Canadian annals than in those of the States, where the difficulties were rather with soil and climate, and such small fry as peacods and narangasets, rather than with such scourges as nearly swept the French settlements out of existence. Still, I want to bring in the Puritans too, but I've not got the thread to connect the two together. And up to the eve of writing the novel, Conan Doyle was still struggling with quite fundamental aspects of the book. Uh, at one point, he considered bringing back his Puritan hero, Micah Clarke, from the novel of the same name, which had been published two years earlier. As Matthias Bostroms pointed out, Micah Clarke was really Conan Doyle's big early writing success, far more so than A Study in Scarlet. Uh, and given that it's set during the 1685 Monmouth Rebellion in England... Um, one can see why Conan Doyle was tempted by the idea, but in the event, he, he decided against it. On the 7th of December, 1891, he wrote to his mother, I've begun my new novel and did 50 pages this week. The Refugees, I call it, and I think the name good, short and apropos. I've decided not to introduce Micah, but to have entirely new material. From then on, Conan Doyle rattled through the novel in his uh, customary way, and uh, he had it finished by the 7th of March. He was also writing Sherlock Holmes at the same time. Uh, in an interview much later in life with The Strand, he said that he remembered once writing 10,000 words of the refugees in 24 hours uh, and said uh, it was the part where the Grand Monarch was between his two mistresses and contains as sustained an effort as I've ever made. But you can feel that he was actually quite disenchanted by the book and and even at around this time again in a letter to his mother he says i hope to finish by february when i will arrange for a little change the book will be conscientious respectable and dull and amazingly he seems to have been changing his mind on the ending of the story through to the conclusion of the writing he uh, when he wrote, finished the novel on the 7th of march he wrote uh, a letter saying uh, I finished the refugees and have saved my hero and heroine instead of slaying them, as was my intention. I found that the latter half of the book became so sombre that if I added this final tragedy, the effect would be overwhelming. I'm now fairly satisfied with it all, which is a bit damning in faint praise. Um, and the book was finally serialised in Harper's almost a year later in six parts between January and June 1893. Uh, that delay probably worked well for Harper's because by then the adventures of Sherlock Holmes had been uh, published in America and the memoirs was just being serialised. So Conan Doyle's stock was high. Um, in the UK, it came out as a three-volume edition by Longman's in May 1893 and a single-volume edition in July. And the novel remained in print for a very long time, though uh, Conan Doyle was never entirely happy with it. Now this is the first of Conan Doyle's historical novels that we have looked at and you really get a sense of how he goes about treating history with 
ordinary characters set against the great stage of, of historical events. Yeah, you look at his main character here, uh, Amory de Catana. He's a junior officer in, in the Garde de Corps, uh, yet he, he's also a Huguenot. So he, he's able to watch Louis and the court uh, at their day-to-day activities. Uh, but the fact that he's there as a, as a Huguenot officer also shows you know, the degree of tolerance which existed at this point. Um, and and he, this, this is about to be disrupted. He's actually watching the court and the machinations that are going to lead up to the revocation of the, the Edict of Nantes. Uh, and it's going to lead to his own professional destruction. Uh, he, he's seeing this happen. Now, something on the the, the background, the, the, the Edict of Nantes uh, was, was enacted in uh, 1598 by King Henri IV. Uh, and, and France had suffered dreadfully throughout the 16th century with, with the wars of religion between the Protestants and the Catholics. Henri himself had been a great Protestant hero, converted to Catholicism uh, in 1593 before he became... King of France, uh, and then enacted the Edict mm. of Nantes to allow the Huguenots, the Protestants, a certain degree uh, of, of freedom of religion. It certainly didn't allow them all the rights, and, and the, the Catholic majority still retained control of France. Um, but it allowed four characters like Amory de Catinat to reach the position they're at. Um, so he's here in the background just watching as his life is about to fall to pieces. Mm. As as the, the scheming Catholic ministers and prelates press on Louis the Fourteenth, who himself isn't a Catholic zealot, but feels pressured uh, into into revoking the edict. Mm. And incidentally, um, Henri the Fourth was assassinated by uh, the Catholic fanatic Francois Ravaillac in 1610. Uh, and Ravaillac features as one of the heroes of the uh, the anarchists and revolutionaries in Doyle's short story *An Exciting Christmas Eve*, which we covered in episode mm. nine. And we know Conan Doyle took his uh, research very seriously. He he described in that strand interview i mentioned earlier about how he constructed notebooks where he would draw together details thematically about characters and places and events um, and some of those notebooks uh, survive we mentioned one of them with uh, cliff goldfarb and we know quite a bit about his historical sources for the refugees because he listed some of them at the end of the uh, the book edition and there are three sources in particular the first is um Julia Pardo's Louis XIV and the Court of France in the 17th century, which is a a multi-volume work that came out in 1847, and it's immensely rich in in detail and draws on memoirs and letters. There's also Dollinger's Historical Studies in European History, which came out in translation in 1890, just as he will have been, you know, considering this might have been fresh in his mind, And within that book, the last study is entitled The Most Influential Woman in French History, and it's a discourse on Madame de Maintenon, who is central to the uh, first half of the the novel. And in fact, um, Dollinger's real case was that uh, Madame de Maintenon had been uh, undermined in the historiography uh, and deserved greater respect and credit uh, for Louis XIV's later years and uh, the decisions made at that time. And in fact, Conan Doyle's Louis XIV and Madame de Maintenon are very similar to, to that of, uh, of Dollinger's. And then the final 
source that uh, is worth mentioning is Francis Parkman's France and England in North America, published in seven volumes between 1865 and 1892. And Conan Doyle references this again in Memories and Adventures, his autobiography, where he said, I used in The Refugees a great deal which was drawn from Parkman, that great but neglected historian who was, in my opinion, the greatest serious writer that America has produced. Um, and in fact, when Conan Doyle visited New York and New England and Quebec in 1914, he referred to the whole area as Parkman land. Um, so clearly very influenced by by Parkman. Um, but how accurate was his depiction of events and, and personages? Yeah, he, he essentially tries to play fair with history. He, he messes about with chronology, but then again, most historical novelists do mm. that and historical dramatists, uh, partly because you have to mm. do that if you want to tell the story in a way that works in a, in a more dramatic style. Um, but in terms of, of, of the character, he, he's trying to be fair mm. um, on, on all sides, essentially. He's trying to take the, the view of a, of, of a balanced historian uh, with these characters and looking at court intrigue and how the mechanisms of court intrigue work between the personalities um, and he, he's he's trying to do this in a, in a in a kind of a realistic, almost you know, what one might almost say grown up mm. way. Um, for instance, when when uh, he, he's talking about Madame de Montespan, he he doesn't go into all the the stories surrounding Madame de Montespan about, about her alleged involvement in in um, black magic. Uh, ceremonies at, at Versailles and and her involvement with with the um, the, the kind of the witch like character of, mm-hmm. of, of La Voisin um, and and Conan Doyle was, was certainly interested in this aspect of that time because uh, you've got his later story the Leather mm-hmm. Funnel which um, is is built around the um, the activities of of another one of the ladies of his time the Marquise de Planvier who was 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 tortured to death for her alleged involvement in black magic uh, activities and it, it, it's quite funny looking at the the characters of of the court in this respect you've got the the, the great uh, British writer on black magic Dennis Wheatley mm-hmm. um, talking about de Montespan and, and um, de Montenon actually has a real uh, dig at, at, at de Montenon whom he describes as, uh, in the name of piety, this evil woman persuaded Louis to revoke the Edict of Nantes, by which his grandfather, Henri IV, had granted freedom of religion to all his people. So so Wheatley, is, is, uh, he has a go at, at uh, de Montespan for her alleged satanic activities, and, and um, he's obviously having a go at de Montespan from the, uh, the, the strictly Protestant viewpoint, shall we mm. say. And the bulk of the end of the first half of the novel is really about that the court politics surrounding the revocation of the Edict of Nantes. But Conan Doyle later in life actually had an alternative explanation for um, for the revocation. He gave a speech on the 3rd of October 1910 entitled The Romance of Medicine to an audience of doctors and medical students in which he, he posited this alternative theory. He said, how many times did the most important historical developments appear to depend upon small physical causes? There was, for example, the case of the revocation of the Edict of Nantes. How came Louis XIV, who had always held out upon this point, to give way at last to the pressure of Madame de Maintenon and his clerical advisers? The answer lay in one of his molar teeth. 
It was historical that he had for some months bad toothache, caries, abscess of the jaw, and finally a sinus which required operation. And it was at this time, when he was pathologically abnormal and irritable, that he took the step which had modified history. And as a complete aside, it's worth drawing out this quote that uh, appears in the uh, novel when we get to the North American segment. And anybody who's familiar with uh, the history of the Second World War might find some um, similarity here. Conan Doyle writes of the French settlers, uh, Never, perhaps in the world's history, has so small a body of men dominated so large a district and for so long a time. It's it's very resonant phrasing and does sound <laughs> very similar to a, one of the most famous speeches of the 1940s. And yeah, there, there is a, a certain degree of possibility in this because we know that Churchill was was a, a Conan Doyle fan um, and, and wrote, Of course, I read every Sherlock Holmes story, but the works I like even more than the detective stories are the great historical novels, which, like Sherlock Holmes, have certainly found a permanent place in English literature. Um, so from that, we know that Churchill was familiar with, with Conan Doyle's historical novels. Uh, he probably really enjoyed the refugees because he was interested in uh, the reign of Louis XIV, uh, having written um, an extensive biography of his own great ancestor, Marlborough, mm. who, of course, fought in the War of Spanish Succession against Louis XIV's troops. Mm. And, of course, in addition to all the historical influences, there are the literary influences as well, and we've talked previously about the uh, influence of Sir Walter Scott. In a letter to his mother in February 1892, he says, I take a young American and man who has hardly ever seen the city and a man of the woods, shrewd, ready and yet naive and innocent, and I manage to mix him up with the French court of Louis XIV, much as Scott mixes up Quentin Durwood with the court of Louis XI. In a way, Conan Doyle's wandering into virgin territory and using the late 17th century in America... Uh, as the setting for an adventure story. Uh, There were other novels set in in the American wilderness and and the the American West. I'm thinking of particular novels like Fenimore Cooper's The Last of the Mohicans, Mm. but that's set in the the mid-18th century, Uh, as is Robert Louis Stevenson's The Master of Ballantrae, which was published four years before the refugees. Mm. But that, again, is set in the aftermath of, of, of the 45 and the Battle of Culloden. Um, but it does feature two brothers from different traditions. So one is a Jacobite, one is a Hanoverian, uh, and their feud in the end takes them to New York and the American wilderness. Mm. Stevenson himself actually read The Refugees and, and wrote uh, a letter to Conan Doyle in which he, uh, he gives him his opinions on the book uh, on August the 23rd, 1893. Have read the refugees. Condé and old Père Morat, very good. Louis Fourteenth and Louvois with the letter bag, very rich. You have reached a trifle wide, perhaps. Too many celebrities. Mm-hmm. Though I was delighted to re-encounter my old friend Dushaila. Old Morat is perhaps your high watermark. Tis excellently human, cheerful and real. Do it again. Madame de Maintenon struck me as quite good. Have you any document for the decapitation? It sounds steepish. The devil of all that first part is that you see old Dumas, yet your Louis the Fourteenth is distinctly good. I am much interested with this book, which fulfills a good deal and promises more. Question. How far a historical novel should be wholly episodic? I incline to that view with trembling. 
I shake hands with you on Ord Morat, RLS. And of course, Stevenson here is also making uh, a very pertinent reference to the influence of uh, Alexandre Dumas-Père on uh, on Conan Doyle's writing. And this is where the, 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 the 17th century element does come in. But Dumas is writing about France rather than um, America at that time. So the, the American element is where Conan Doyle is really striking out into newer territory. Mm. Uh, and it's interesting to um, to think about um, Dumas and the, the, the context of the, uh, the adventure story set in the 17th century, uh, because we know that... Um, Conan Doyle had been reading The Three Musketeers in, in uh, late 1888. Uh, and he, he, he puts in a letter to his mother the, um, that he had been reading The Three Musketeers, which I think is most excellent and quite what the historical novel should be. And then makes the interesting comment with history quite subservient to the romance. Mm. So even given his his fidelity to to certainly the characters of history, if not the, uh, the, 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 the letter and chronology of history, he still feels with, with these sort of stories that you, you, you must appeal to the, the reader who likes a damn good story. Yes, he does make that point about historical accuracy versus boy's own adventure in another letter. And another literary influence that it's worth referencing at this point is Captain Main Reed, who Conan Doyle said was uh, uh, his favourite author, uh, when he was growing up. And uh, in Memories and Adventures, Conan Doyle says that his favourite book as a child was Main Reed's The Scalp Hunters, which is a, a very lurid depiction, as the title suggests, of the American West and with plenty of uh, cowboys and Indian shenanigans. Uh, and at the, uh, the other end of the literary scale, we have another great influence on the, the refugees uh, in the form of The Scarlet Letter by Nathaniel Hawthorne, which we know from one of Conan Doyle's notebooks, he was reading as part of the research process for his own novel. Conan Doyle had a, a, a rather ambivalent attitude towards uh, Nathaniel Hawthorne and seems to have found his work rather gloomy and difficult. Uh, he says in, in, in Through the Magic Door, Nathaniel Hawthorne never appealed in the highest degree to me. The fault, I am sure, is my own, but I always seemed to crave stronger fare than he gave me. It was too subtle, too elusive for effect. Mm. Um, so it's interesting that that he's he's looking at the the, the Scarlet Letter, which is set in one uh, Puritan community in New England, and is a very small scale story uh, that he's using that to to influence this 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 novel of his own with this great adventurous wide scope. Mm. And it's interesting what you say there about Conan Doyle being interested in the large sweep of history because. By the time we get to the second half of the novel, he's largely liberated of that and he can be a, a lot more flexible in his approach. He can use the setting of North America uh, to tell quite a different story. Um, and it becomes much more of a sort of boy's own adventure. Mm -hmm. It becomes uh, sort of cowboys and Indians, uh, for want of a better term. Um, and it really is uh, pure escapism in the second half. But it's also quite problematic, I think, for modern readers. And that's because Conan Doyle goes into a great deal of detail about um, the the problems that the French settlers in, were having with uh, the Iroquois. And his depiction of the Iroquois is, is extremely stereotypical by modern day standards. Um, it's interesting in this respect that Francis Parkman was his primary source for the North American section, because while Parkman is still well-read and well-regarded, it is somewhat notorious for 
the depictions of Native Americans and its somewhat negative view of the French and Roman Catholicism more broadly. Parkman held the, the, the contemporary view that the white settlers defeated the savage natives. And the big problem is that Parkman dehumanizes the Native Americans and puts across the idea that they're more of a primitive stage of human evolution. And to some extent, Conan Doyle does exactly the same. Interestingly, if you go back to the work of Maine Reed and to the Scalp Hunters, uh, which came out in 1851, it's a much more um, varied and diverse view of the tribes, and their depiction is far more complex in that story. There's respect for the Delawares, and there are tribes that are depicted as being highly intelligent and peaceful, uh, while you also have the more aggressive Apaches and Navajos. Um, I mean, there has been some statement that Conan Doyle did come in for criticism for his depiction of the Native Americans uh, in the reviews, but I have to say I haven't been able to find any evidence of that directly. And, and on that point, it, it, it's quite interesting as well that, that Conan Doyle, for a British writer, um, almost seems to side with the French view of the, of the period, mm. um, which had the, the attitude that, that it, was, it was the British who were really pushing these tribes on to attack French settlers. Mm. Um, and he has, has a, uh, a quote in, in, in The Refugees, which is, uh, there was peace between England and France at present, though feeling ran high between Canada and New York, the French believing, and with some justice, that the English colonists were hooping on the demons who attacked them. So again, you've mm. had the, the Indian characterized as demons. So you've, you've got that um, cultural prejudice, which we've just been talking about. Um, but he, he also makes a point um, when, when the... Um, the refugees encounter the, the notorious Indian brown moose. Uh, he is carrying a musket, which is English and marked London. Now, of course, yes. he could have picked that off the body of a British soldier, but the implication really here is that the British were supplying the Indians with, with muskets. And the character who makes that discovery of the rifle is uh, a new introduction into the story in the second half, uh, Daniel Graceland Dulu, who uh, was a French explorer who came to North America at the age of 35 and explored the Great Lakes, encountering the Sioux and uh, establishing trading posts. And there's some debate over whether uh, Deleuze uh, pursued French interests or his own. Uh, he was actually <laughs> put on trial back in France for, um, for that very question. But he was responsible for peacemaking efforts uh, with uh, many of the tribes in the area and, uh, and, and indeed dissuading the tribes from trading with the British. Again, more evidence of what you've just been talking about, mm -hmm. Paul. Um, and Deleu's appearance in the story is, is interesting in a couple of respects. I mean, the first is that he, he really does invigorate the second half of the story as a tracker and a trader with a deep knowledge of the, the territory and the peoples. And in that way, he's able to uh, help orientate the European readers to, to the context. The challenge, I think, for the introduction of Deleuze is that he's a very active character and he starts to take some agency from Amos Green, who we mentioned earlier is one of the, uh, uh, the, is the American character who appears in Paris at the beginning of the adventure. And Amos starts to fade a little bit into the background. But there's also an interesting connection between Deleu and another of uh, Conan Doyle's creations. Yes, well, we, we, we've seen this earlier in the story with, with uh, Amos Green. Um, as the, he, He's able to work his way around Paris using his, his 
tracking skills. But once he's out in the wilderness, he really comes into his own. And the, the, there's there's one point when they're, when they're all moving through the woodland and you've got... Next day at noon, they passed a little clearing, in the centre of which were the charred embers of a fire. Amos spent half an hour in reading all that sticks and ground could tell him. Then, as they resumed their way, he explained to his companions that the fire had been lit three weeks before, that a white man and two Indians had camped there, that they had been journeying from west to east, and that one of the Indians had been a squaw. Again, we, we are straight into, mm. into Sherlock Holmes territory here. Um, and, and Grace Londolu, when he comes into the story, he, he puts Amos in the shade. You've mm. got one quote on him. Uh, but Delu was on his feet again in a moment and running up and down like a sleuth hound, noting a hundred <laughs> things which even Amos would have overlooked. So th- this is uh, the, the idea of, of, of tracker and, and woodsman as, as detective. Uh, this, this idea would... would be taken one step further in, in 1911 by the writer Hesketh Pritchard, who, who came up with the, the detective November Joe, who is a woodsman detective. So it's it's, it's all this 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 all comes together. You've, you've got the, the the Sherlock Holmes approach meeting that meeting that of the of, of the woodsman and the tracker. Mm. And and contemporary reviewers did spot the Sherlock Holmes connection. There's a there's a review in the Westminster Budget from June. Uh, 9th of June, 1893, uh, which reads, uh, Of course, the book would not be complete without a visit from Mr. Sherlock Holmes. And so, in the third volume, we suddenly recognise once more his well-known face, disguised with all his ancient skill, in the costume of a Red Indian. But he is still the unmistakable Holmes, with his detective energies merely diverted to the discovery of trails and scents, and skilled in the use of a tomahawk. And we have no doubt that by this time he has shaken off the alias of Duchut and returned to those famous rooms in Gower Street. So unfortunately, the reviewer hasn't necessarily read The Refugees or Sherlock Holmes in great detail, but the point is made nevertheless. Um, and there are some other Sherlockian connections uh, with this story. Uh, I mentioned earlier that Conan Doyle was writing this novel while writing Sherlock Holmes. Uh, in fact, in Memories and Adventures, Conan Doyle says, I was weary of inventing plots, and I set myself to do some work which would certainly be less remunerative, but would be more ambitious from a literary point of view. Um, And if you look at the timing of the writing of The Refugees, he was writing this at about the same time as uh, as he wrote The Noble Bachelor. And there are lots of connections in The Noble Bachelor to The Refugees. The Noble Bachelor concerns the marriage of Lord St. Simon to an American, uh, Miss Hattie Duran, who goes missing on their wedding day. And it transpires that um, Hattie was married in America to Francis Hay Moulton, who was believed to have been killed by Apaches, but in fact survived the attack and and reappeared on the morning of the wedding. So there's the obvious connection to the Apache attack, but there are also a couple of other points. Earlier I mentioned um, Conan Doyle's ambitions for the refugees as a book that would uh, bring together the British and the American nations. And here in The Noble Bachelor, we get a very famous line from Holmes. It is always a joy to me to meet an American, Mr. Moulton, for I am one of those who believe that the folly of a monarch and the blundering of a minister in far-gone years will not prevent our children from being some day citizens of the same worldwide country under a flag which shall be a quartering of the Union Jack with the stars and stripes. Um, and it's also likely that Lord St. Simon gets his name from Conan Doyle's historical research for the refugees. Uh, one of the principal chroniclers of the French court of Louis XIV was the Duc de Saint-Simon, uh, 
Uh, and we know that one of Conan Doyle's historical sources was Dollinger's historical studies, which roundly criticises Saint-Simon's character assassination of Madame de Maintenon. But perhaps the most interesting uh, bleed across from the refugees into the Sherlock Holmes canon is that Holmes himself is described as having the characteristics of a Native American. In The Crooked Man, Holmes is said to have that red Indian composure which had made so many regard him as a machine rather than a man. While in the naval treaty, he had the utter immobility of countenance of a red Indian. Uh, stereo, stereotypical stuff, to be sure. But it's interesting that these references appear in two stories that were written in the six months after completing uh, The Refugees. Uh, and that, um, you know, after that, there are no further references of this sort in, uh, in the Sherlock Holmes stories. So that membrane between Conan Doyle's wider writing and his Sherlockian fiction is, is, is often... Uh, paper thin and you can see elements of the refugees and and uh, the noble bachelor coming together there is another sherlock holmes story published in 1893 the final problem which might have a a, 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 a strange link to the refugees mm-hmm. um when you, you think about the, the moment in the final problem when when um holmes and watson are waiting at canterbury station and moriarty hot on their trail has um commissioned a special train to follow them and they, they see him in in the the wildness of his pursuit um and there's a similar character in the refugees uh, when when the refugees themselves land in quebec they are recognized by a fanatical franciscan friar <laughs> as huguenot refugees and he wants to send them back to france where they'll they'll be converted to the true faith um they escape and he follows them indefatigably throughout the uh, the the, the, the wanderings in the wilderness uh, and there's one point where he even takes to the water to follow them and and we get this description a large canoe was coming up the river flying along as quick as a dozen arms could drive it in the stern sat a dark figure which bent forward with every swing of the paddles as though consumed by eagerness to push onwards even at that distance there was no mistaking it it was the fanatical monk whom they had left behind them it, it, it's very much <laughs> the, this kind of driven moriarty-esque figure this bete noire who is who is following them and will not let them go mm, that's interesting because i mean it had conan Doyle gone ahead with the original ending that uh, the de Catena were killed at the end of uh, the refugees then perhaps that person could have indeed had more even more shades of moriarty about him yes he might have um, gone to their deaths battling mm. franciscan friar i want to read that version <laughs> <laughs> and the franciscan friar is just one of many interesting depictions of religious characters throughout this book which fundamentally is dealing with uh, uh, with matters religious and spiritual Yes, it's, it's it's something Conan Doyle was was ever interested in, um, and and his later conversion to spiritualism has tended to overshadow um, the views of, of of people looking looking back at Conan Doyle and and his 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 views on spiritual matters. Um, mm-hmm. In eighteen ninety three, he just really begun to explore the world of of. of spiritualism and and the, the, the more occult side of things uh he, he'd been brought up as a catholic and educated by the jesuits at stonyhurst college in lancashire and a lot of that background comes out in this book uh, and mm. you've, you've you've got the the 
different. Doyle he, 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 he tries to be as fair as he can um, mm. th- throughout the refugees. You've got the the point about the um, the revocation of the Edict of Nantes. You have have Louis himself uncertain about whether to to go ahead with this 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 act, um, and he's pushed into it by people who believe they might be seen as fanatical, but but they believe they're doing right. Uh, Conan Doyle writes uh, at one point, uh, Père Lachaise, who was. Louis XIV's personal confessor uh, and the bishop of Moore shook their heads. Nature had made them both kind and charitable men. And then comes a very, uh, very interesting phrase. But the heart turns to flint when the blessing of religion is changed to the curse of sect. Hmm. So, so Doyle himself was he was not an anti-religious man. It, it's it's fanaticism and the dangers of fanaticism, and that's what this book is about. Uh, and you have these these different depictions. The the fanatical Franciscan friar is admirable only in his um, indomitable determination to capture the refugees. We meet another Jesuit. Uh, priest in the wilderness, Father Ignatius Morat, who is, is a genuinely saintly character. And this is the, mm. the character Robert Louis Stevenson picked up on in the letter he wrote to, to Doyle. And this, this is the kind of figure that Doyle would have seen as, as a boy um, at Stonyhurst. And it, it's interesting, he calls the character Ignatius Morat. Um, presumably, this is after the great Jesuit saint Ignatius Loyola, but it's also one of Conan Doyle's given names was Ignatius. Mm-hmm. Um, and and then for someone raised in Catholicism, it's very interesting that the heroes of of his two books of this uh, set in this period, both in 1685, Micah Clark, the English book, uh, is is a Puritan, and uh, Amory de de Catenat is is a French Huguenot. Both strictly Protestant characters, so he, he's mm. taking a very even handed view of of religion. Yes, and there's one Puritan character, Ephraim Savage, who's the um, uh, captain who transports the uh, the refugees from France to North America, who takes rather a dim view of uh, Amory and uh, Adele's relationship and wants to see them separated. He's rather more of a hardline Puritan. Um, so it's not that the uh, the the Catholics are always bad and the Puritans are always good. There is there's there are shades of grey in 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 the characters. Yeah, and, and Ephraim Savage could perhaps reflect Conan Doyle's reading of the Scarlet Letter, which is set within a, a very um, tight knit Puritan community w- whose members essentially turn on each other, and 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 the 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 infighting and 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 the prejudices. That they they had in Europe, they've brought over to the, the 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 new world. The only character who is irredeemably evil in in the whole novel is uh, Abbe Duchella, who uh, appears only in one scene, um, but is a really fascinating inclusion. It's almost like Conan Doyle going back into his Gothic roots. Duchella is described as an emaciated figure with white fleshless arms bent and screwed into fantastic shapes, the result of crucifixion and torture in Siam while working as a missionary. Uh, and, and that is indeed true. At the end of uh, Duchela's scene, he is uh, sent back to the Cévennes to carry word of the revocation of the Edict of Nantes um, to the Huguenot, or the Camisar, as they were known locally. Um, and, and over the following years, Duchela 
tortured uh, Huguenot in his in his home area. His harsh treatment of the Huguenot precipitated what's known as the um, the War of the Camisar, which lasted on and off for thirty years. Um, but he was killed in 1702 when his, he, he was dragged from his burning house and, uh, and, and stabbed repeatedly in the public square. He's quite an amazing figure. And he also fascinated uh, Robert Louis Stevenson. Yes, yeah, in that letter that <clears throat> Stevenson wrote to, to Conan Doyle, where he refers to de Shiloh as, as my old friend, um, <laughs> in a very ironic way, of course, uh, it's because um, when, when Stevenson uh, went on his rather whimsical journey uh, with a donkey through the Savannah, which uh, was the subject of his 1879 travelogue, mm. uh, he visited uh, Pont de Montvert, where uh, de Shiloh was 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 actually killed by the Camisars and and obviously came upon a lot of these stories and folk memories as he was walking through the the, the very region which de Shiloh had had te- uh, terrorised. Yeah, it's 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 very interesting. Um, Looking at the refugees, where 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 Conan Doyle sees the the negatives and positives of of, of both Protestantism and Catholicism, uh, and after he'd lost his own Catholic faith, I don't think there was any question ever of of him converting to Protestantism as his mother later mm. did. Um, what is interesting is he can see the good and bad in both, and he himself took the third way of spiritualism. Mm. So we're reaching the end of the podcast now, and uh, I must admit I really enjoyed reading The Refugees, although I will admit that the immature adult in me found the second half far more entertaining than the first half. Um, How did you find it, Paul? Well, I, I enjoyed the novel more than I was expecting to, I have to say. Mm. Um, I, I do find, again, the, the first part, uh, I do enjoy its its Alexandre Dumas aspects mm. enormously, but it does suffer from Conan Doyle's habit of of showing off research and having to introduce so many historical characters and and particularly where you've got court scenes and so on. Oh, look, there's uh, uh, such and such over there. And it's it's introducing you too much into that world and slowing down the action. Mm. Um, But it it is, I can understand why he does it in a way, because it is the the court of Louis XIV is an extremely interesting subject, but it's, it, does slow it down Mm. um second half uh the the american half i just thoroughly enjoy as as a kind of boy's own adventure with with lots of grown-up bits thrown in as Mm. well and grown-up attitudes and and uh, serious discussions of of um, religious and, and historical matters that don't actually slow the story down. It still reads as a rattling good yarn. I've got in my own collection um, a 1920s schools edition uh, of the refugees uh, where they cut the first half down from its 23 chapters to eight <laughs> and keep the second half, the Adventures of American half, complete. <laughs> Well, that might tell people where they want to begin with this story if they want to uh, if they want to give it a go themselves. So that brings us to the end of this podcast. Thanks very much for listening. Uh, you can find the show notes at doingsofdoyle dot com, uh, and next time you can join us for well, what have we got in store, Paul? Next time we'll be examining the terror of Blue John Gap, where we will be going into the caves of Derbyshire and finding a prehistoric survival. Excellent. I'm looking forward to that. So until next time, it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. Goodbye.
I mean, I love that. The fact that we can go from Main Reed to Nathaniel Hawthorne is brilliant. <laughs> Only in this podcast. <laughs> hey, we've just had Dennis Bloody Wheatley. <laughs> Dennis Wheatley as well. Oh, brilliant. Yes. 